Thank you, Brother Andy, for coming today. You know, it was it's tough after last Sunday uh, being here. Uh, really, every Sunday should be Easter. Every Sunday should be Easter, meaning we had over a thousand people here last Sunday. There should have been more than that here today. But because we don't have Easter every Sunday, we had those uh, 30% of the people who come once a month came last Sunday. So uh, that's kind of how it is, though. They'll be back next Sunday or the Sunday after that. And I also am glad that Miss Wendy, this was her idea for families to worship together on the last Sunday of the month. Uh, I, believe, I believe children need to sit with parents in church because I learned to sit still in church. My mother pinched the fire out of me all the time. Um, yeah, or I got to just wait till we get home and see your dad. Your, your dad's going to, you know. And uh, so I, I was always apprehensive during the worship service. But it is good, I think, for children to sit with mom and dad. And mom and dad's, when your children in here, it's okay to sing. When your children aren't here, if you don't like to sing, then don't sing. But it's good to sing with your kids because they need to see you worship. And I know churches today have places where they put their children in sort of a Christian, sort of a, uh, sometimes it's a Christian daycare on Sunday morning, so mom and dad can go do some, you know, be themselves. Uh, but it's good to be in a church that uh, once a month we sit together as a family. That's very important that children worship with their parents at least sometime as a family. There is more caught than there is taught. And the best place to catch it, I think, is in the worship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Anyway, let's start our study today. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been between that proverbial rock and that hard place, the rock and the hard place? You know, that, that place when you're in a tight squeeze. You have, you have found yourself in a spot. You found yourself in a place or a position where that the, the impossible is being asked of you. The challenge that is in front of you, the difficulty that is before you, or the opportunity, if you want to call it that, for those of us who are optimists, those opportunities that are there are just more than you can stomach. They are more than you can swallow. They are more than you have enough resources to meet in and of yourself. You are bankrupt. You're exhausted. You're emotionally distraught, and there's nothing more that you can give or do to wiggle your way or ease your way out of the circumstance or the the situation that you are in. Some of us would probably say, I'm there today. Some of us would honestly say, I've been there in the past, but I'm kind of going through a good time today. And those of us who are there need to hold on because we will get to that point at some point if we live any length of life, or we will all become, and we'll all get to a place in which our resources will not be enough. No matter how much effort, no matter how much energy, no matter how much enthusiasm we may possibly drum up, it will not suffice, it will not measure up, it will not empower us to be able to overcome what is before us, what we are facing. That will happen. And you'll come against a wall, and your faith will be tested, and you will cry out to God, and you will wonder, God, where are you? God, why have you allowed this to exist? God, can't you do something about it today? Not tomorrow, but now. Then there are times, I think, when 
in this relationship we have with the Lord, he comes into our lives, invades our comfort zone, and invites us to join him in a, in a mission that is beyond our own resource. That's right. God is not an absentee landlord. God is constantly and continually orchestrating things in human history to accomplish and fulfill not only his will, but to bring him glory. And what he is doing presently, God is always at work to redeem a lost humanity. And he sought us out at one place, at one time, at one point in our lives, and he called us unto himself. We accepted Christ as our Savior. We placed our faith and trust in Jesus, and we were then born again. We became disciples. We became Christ's followers. And as we began to develop that relationship, God began to communicate things into our lives, things that he wanted to add and things that he wanted to take away, places in which he wanted us to go and things that he wanted to transform in our lives. And we we're going okay until all of a sudden in that relationship, as we're learning to listen to God, he all of a sudden invades our cover level and invites us to do something that is outside of our comfort level. It's beyond our own human resources. And most of the time, that which he asks us to do at that point is beyond even human reason. And we, we can't possibly conceptualize, much less imagine, that what God is inviting and asking us to do, he's, he's asking us to do. Because it's beyond what I have to give. It's beyond what I can do. It's, it's beyond me. And at that point, we learn then that we get into what the Bible calls, in many instances in the life of the disciples, a crisis of belief. When God either invites us to, to, to go through something or invites us to go with him into something, we reach a crisis of belief. And that crisis of belief is always a reality in each and every one of us as Christ's followers, as a disciple. There's a crisis in which we want to know, God, are you enough? Are you enough? Do I have enough faith in you? Do I believe in you? Do I know who you are to the extent that I believe if I respond obediently to what you're inviting me to do or asking of me or putting on me or placing on me, then I believe that because of who you are, you and you alone are enough. And as long as I have you and I know you, then what I have, I have more than enough to follow you. The disciples have reached this place in their ministry many times in their, in their transformation of being Christ's followers and following Jesus. And we see in John chapter 6 just one more time in which the disciples are reaching what we call a crisis of belief. And I want you to stand with me. We're going to read John chapter 6 verses 1 through verse Six, And I want you to look at the very final verse before we read it. Verse 6, he said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew in advance, before he even asked his disciples, what should we do? Already had a plan in his heart, in his mind. He intentionally brought his disciples to this particular place, and he turns to them and said, what are we going to do? And Jesus says, I already know what we're going to do. But I'm asking you in order to put your faith to the test. So whenever Jesus ever invites himself into your life, 
and places on something on you that's harder than life itself or invites you to go with him in a place that is more difficult than you can possibly imagine. And this, this thing that he's asking in regard to obedience is greater than you could possibly give. Just know in advance, if God has spoken and he genuinely has, and he's confirmed that in your heart, that God already knows as he invites you and you join him exactly how it's going to work out and what you need in order to make that become a reality in your life. He already knows. For God is all-knowing. He sees your life yesterday, today, and tomorrow all at the same time. And there is nothing that surprises God. Let's look at the text in John 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a crowd, a large crowd, was coming toward him, Jesus turns and says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He says this in order to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Let's pray. God, thank you for the joy that is ours to be a part of this time together with you. And I pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds with understanding of the intent of this passage. To not only hear a historical account of a time in ancient history in which your disciples went through a test, but to recognize and realize that the test they went through is a test that we go through on a regular basis. For there are people in this room that are standing before you this morning, God, who, who are carrying burdens that are far surpass their human capability to hold up and to withstand. There are people in this room that you're inviting to join you in some beautiful mission or some activity, and they're looking at their own resources and recognizing and realizing, I don't have what it takes to fulfill what God is asking me to do. But God, because we know who you are and we know what you're capable of, We put our faith and our trust in you and rely upon you to provide our insufficiencies so that through that faith, you will make us more than adequate to accomplish your plan and your purpose, not only in our lives, but in the world in which you're wanting to redeem unto yourself. So glorify yourself in this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. I want to take a look at the text verse by verse. We're going to go through these passages really quickly. Verses 1 through 15 in John chapter 6. I want us to look at the place of the test. The place is critical. Because you see, Jesus, I believe, intentionally brought his disciples to this place for this reason. He had to bring them to where they were in order to teach them this lesson. Sure, he could have taught it over here, but he wanted to bring them here. And I don't know where you are today, but you may need to go somewhere with God into the place that he wants to bring you so that as you move with Christ into the place under the leadership of the Holy Spirit where he wants to take you, it is then and it is there that he's going to teach you how to trust him and his possibilities and his power in and through your obedience. Notice the text in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing 
on the sick. So Jesus went up the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. We see in this text something really unusual. As John begins to tell us, did you know this miracle is recorded in the other Gospels as well? And we see as we combine the other Gospels' account of this feeding of the 5,000, we see that there's a specific place in which Jesus is intending to go. He's on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and, and the people here in this text says that they were relentlessly pursuing Jesus. They were relentlessly pursuing Jesus. Now, the reason why they were relentlessly pursuing Christ wasn't because they wanted to follow him as a disciple. It says here that because they saw signs that he was doing, he was healing people. He was doing incredible, miraculous things, and those miraculous things caused the people to relentlessly pursue Christ everywhere he went because they wanted to see the show. They wanted to see the miraculous. And I want to just add a, sad note, a side note here that I think many churches have gone to the, the spectacular things in order to draw a crowd. And one Sunday has to become more spectacular than last Sunday, and that Sunday more than last Sunday in order to wow the people to attract them to come because nothing draws a crowd like something spectacular. But very few of us enjoy circuses, do we? Anybody not enjoy a circus? I, I don't go to too many of those. I haven't been one in years. But it was like a circus. People were coming to, to, and they were relentlessly pursuing Christ to see the spectacular, to see the miraculous, to see the supernatural. They weren't concerned much about his message. They weren't really concerned about even following Christ. They wanted to see more signs, more miracles, more supernatural things. And so by the thousands they were gathering, and Jesus in this particular point in his ministry, everywhere he went, there were thousands upon thousands of people that were gathered around him in order to see these miraculous things. And that's why they were there. They were there for self-interest and self-entertainment rather than becoming fully devoted Christ followers. But notice in the text, too, that Jesus and his disciples had a desire to get away from the crowds. It was time for a retreat. They were seeking rest and relaxation because ministry, unlike some of you who work really for a living other than people like myself, ministry can be, can be taxing sometimes. And Jesus had been relentlessly, unselfishly ministering to lots of people on a continual basis. Everywhere he went, there were people and people and people, and he had to always be on and always doing miracles, and more and more. He had sent his disciples, we learn in Mark, on a mission, and they had returned from the mission and given Christ, you know, the, the lowdown on what happened on the mission, and they too were tired. So Christ said, you know, we disciples... You and I, we, we need to get together. So they got in the boat, and they went to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And as they're traveling, we learn in this gospel and the other gospels that the crowds were upset that Christ was sort of distancing himself from them. So what they decided to do is run along the so shore of the Sea of Galilee so they could follow him to his next destination. They pursued him. So that, the, that by the time Christ got to the other side of the sea, there was already a large crowd awaiting him when he arrived. He couldn't get away from the masses. And at this point, the crowd was somewhat of a small crowd, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow rather quickly from this point on. And so we see that this is the place where the miracle is going to take place. And as we look at this place, as Christ has wanted retreat, 
We learn that this retreat is also a reality in, in, in Jesus' life because he's just heard that John the Baptist has been murdered and he's saddened by his cousin, his, the, 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 the forerunner of Jesus has been murdered by Herod. And Herod has asked to see Jesus. And so there's, there's, this, there's this wanting to get away. And so the place of a retreat and rest is the place in which this is to happen. Notice the purpose that we see in this retreat in verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, we learn by the other narratives in the other records of the gospel in, in Matthew and in Mark that the, the disciples are the ones who first, John doesn't tell us this, but they are the first ones to notice that it's Passover and it's getting late into the day and the people are hungry. And, and I don't know about you, but I get grumpy when I get hungry. Do you? How many get grumpy when they get hungry? All right, so about 12 o'clock, we know who to, to avoid in the church, Okay. And, and so there's a murmuring going on, and obviously there's not a quick trip anywhere nearby or a good Mexican food place. And so as a result of this, uh, there's nowhere to purchase food. And the disciples recognize and realize that this mass of humanity has no place to go to a Dillon's to buy anything. And so they bring this to the attention of Jesus. They said, Jesus, what are we going to do to feed these people? And Jesus does, and according to John, he turns, and, and John is the only one, and he names Philip, and he says to Philip, and the reason why he asks Philip is because, you see, Philip is a local boy. He's, he's grown up in this neighborhood near Bethsaida, and he knows about the area. And so Jesus looks to him and says, hey, Philip, you're from around here, so tell me, where's the local quick trip so we can buy some stuff to eat for this group? You know, because we're, we're in your neck of the woods. We're in your neighborhood. And Philip does what Philip does. He quickly begins to assess how much it was going to take. Notice that Philip doesn't really answer the, the, the question that Jesus asked. Philip says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Where are we going to get it? There's no place anywhere around. And then John, the only one, has the insight to tell us that he asked this in order to test not just him but the disciples, and he's putting them to the test. He's saying, hey, guys, I already know what I'm going to do, but I'm asking you, I'm putting you to a test. I want to see if you really, truly believe who I am. Do you really believe in me? Do you truly believe that I am the Son of God? Do you truly believe that I am divine? Do you truly believe that I, whom you have seen, do incredible, miraculous things and healing and, and all of this other stuff? Do you believe in my power? Do you truly believe that I am who I claim to be, the Messiah, the promised one? Do you believe that? Really? Do you believe that? Let's, let's put you to the test. I'm going to put you in this circumstance. I'm going to put this squeeze on you, and I'm going to ask you, what do you believe about me? Maybe we go through some of these things where we feel the squeeze. Or maybe we go through these times of, of God inviting us to go with him into places that we know that we don't have the resources sufficient enough to meet the need or the demand of the, of the ministry, where he is, he's, he's putting us to the test. I, I want to see if you really believe in me. Because you see, it's easy for us to say something. It's easy for us to declare something. It's easy for us to sing about our faith. But it's another thing to live it, isn't it? 
Because a lot of times when we get squeezed, we scream and we cry and we doubt and we question and we argue and we battle and we defend. And here he's putting them to the test. That's the purpose for this this whole encounter with the disciples because Jesus is incredibly intentional with his disciples. He's incredibly intentional with you and he never invites you to join him, to go with him or to bear something for him in which he doesn't already have the answer or the solution or the resource to meet the need because that's who he is. And whatever you're going through today, there's a purpose for that. It's so that he can strengthen you and grow you into belief in him and as a disciple of his. He doesn't do anything flippantly just because he likes to see you hurt or just because he likes to see you squirm. That's not the kind of God we believe in. He's the kind of God that that wants us to grow. He wants to transform us into the likeness of his son, Jesus. And so there's there's a purpose for for us going through these, these hardships and these impossible tasks. Notice the provision now of the Lord. Uh, no, no, let's go back. Notice the proposal of the test. In verse 7, it says, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. I don't know about you, but how many, how many accountants do we have here? How much is that? That's almost a year's wages. Now, we know, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, that the size of the crowd is described as 5,000. That's 5,000 men. And I think the reason why it's described as 5,000 men is because those who are reading it have calculated there are 5,000 men so they can probably know how many soldiers or warriors they can have if Jesus decides to to invade Rome and to seize the throne with, with political power and with an army. So they only counted the men. But many believe there were 20,000 plus people by now. I don't know about you, but that's a lot of people, 20,000 people. And he calculates in his mind, three times 20 is what? Come on, $60,000. I mean, let's say that we could feed a person for three bucks and we multiplied it by 20, that's 60,000. That's about a year's wages for most of us, right? Right? No, okay, never mind. How many make, no, I'm not going to ask you to make less than that. No, I'm going to do that. So they calculated, so okay, it's about, about a, a year's wages would not be enough. There's no way in the world that we have the resources. We've looked at the kitty, we've checked the bank account, we've looked at our portfolio, and we don't have enough in the bank account, in the Jesus bank account, in order to buy food for everyone, even if we could. I'm a local guy. I'm from Bethsaida. I know that there's no place around, no quick trip, no Dylan's that we can go buy food. It's impossible. He's saying there's no way in the world. Now, notice in verse 8, one of the other disciples named Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says to him, there's a boy over here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many. I mean, what does he do? I mean, we've got Andrew here who, who goes scav- scavenging through the crowd of 20,000 to see how much people can, can bring to the kitty. You know what I'm saying? How much you got? How much you got? How much you got? And the only thing he was able to muster up in that crowd of 20,000 are, are five loaves and two dried up fishes. Now, this is a meal for poor people, okay? This is a poor man's lunch, And this young man or this older boy has had enough sense to pack his own lunch. And he's he's close enough in proximity so that the disciples at least know what he has. And he brings the boy with the sack lunch and said, this is all we've gotten. What's he saying? This is what we have, but it's not enough to cover it. I don't have enough. You ever felt like that? 
I don't have enough. I don't have enough power. I don't have energy. I don't have enough resource. I don't have enough willpower, man. I'm, I'm out. I'm out of resources. There's no way in the world that I can do it. Until all of a sudden Jesus steps in and notice the provision of Jesus in the text in verse 10. Jesus says to not only the two guys, but to all the disciples who were there, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, which means about April and March. And so the men sat down, about 5,000, about 20,000 total in number. Verse 11, that Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. Notice he took the loaves, and he took the fish, and he gave thanks. I, I like the fact that before he ate, he gave thanks. And if your family does not have the practice of giving thanks to God, giving glory to God for the meal that's in front of you, you should. Because that's what Jesus did. There's not a greater way to teach your children about having faith in God and telling your children by your example that what we have before us on our table comes from the Father's provision, not from our own doing. Well, wait a minute, I'm the one that worked. Really? Think about it. So he gave thanks. And according to other, other, other accounts, he not only distributed to those who were seated, but he gave it to disciples, and disciples distributed to those who were there. He, he bunched them up in groups of 150, and he gave each of his disciples, all 12, a basket, and he also, with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. They ate as much as they wanted. In other words, they ate till they were filled. In verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill... After everyone was done, he told his disciples, the 12, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. How many of you like leftovers? You know, there's some stuff that's better after it's been in the refrigerator for a little while. Now, I know a, a friend of mine who's a pastor who, who does not eat any leftovers. What a waste. I eat leftovers all the time, sometimes leftover leftovers. And now that there's only two of us, we eat leftover from the leftover from the leftovers. We eat it until it's gone. If it doesn't have any green stuff on it, you know, we eat it. There might have been a time or two we scrape some green stuff off and eat it anyway. But anyway, I'm sorry I grossed you out. Well, you're not hungry anymore. That's good. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets. The reason they're 12 baskets isn't any significant reason other than the fact that they're 12 disciples, I believe, with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. He provided. He fed 20,000 people with how many loaves and how many fish? Five loaves. Two fish, two dried up old fish. I don't particularly care much for fish. I eat it once a week. I'm a good Catholic. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, two fish. And he fed 20,000 plus people. Unquestionably, the people who were there knew something supernatural had happened. God did it. Jesus is the divine. He is the son of God. He lifted it up and he gave thanks to the father and they started distributing and everybody reached in the basket until all of a sudden everybody had eaten their fill. And then when they got through with that, they gathered the basket together and there were 12 left over. How many did they start out with? Five loaves and two fish. Now how much do they have left over? How would you like to sit down on a meal, eat everything you can until you're full and then we got the leftovers. You had 
12 times or 100 times more than you started with. Christ multiplies what you give to him. Now notice the preeminence of Jesus in this next text, in verse 14. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. They recognized Jesus as the Messiah. They had, you remember it's Passover and they have Passover in their mind. Remember that was the time when they put the blood above the door. Moses, get it, the last time before Pharaoh broke and, 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 and their children did not die. And so they celebrated with the Passover. They broke the bread and they celebrated the Passover. And so They're reminded now of the provisions that Moses enjoyed and the people of Israel enjoyed for 40 years in the wilderness where God fed his people with heavenly manna. It was a miraculous thing. God fed them for 40 years in the wilderness. And they're reminded of that. And some of these people put two and two together and think, you know, if this Jesus can feed us for 40 years in the wilderness, the million plus people throughout the wilderness, we need to make him our king because we'll never go hungry. It was the most self-centered, self-absorbed government program you've ever seen. They saw Jesus as their meal ticket. And if we could put him on the throne, we'll never go hungry. We won't have to work another day in our lives. He'll feed us with heavenly manna. But Jesus, verse 15, perceiving them then that they were about to come and take him by force, to make him king. They were about to come and take him by force as if they thought they could and force him to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus, we are told, dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he sent his disciples in the boat to the other side of Galilee and he himself retreated to the mountains. So let's close with this. It's going to be quick. Let's take a look at the, at the test of the disciples. Let's look at the test. How can you pass the test? Quickly. Six things. Number one, you got to realize the need. They realized the need. They knew there were 20,000 people. Uh, They knew the need that was there. And and they assessed the need. They analyzed the need. They had a little committee meeting of disciples. They got together. This is what we need. They recognized then after they realized the need that we don't have the sufficient things to supply the need. I mean, there's no way in the world we can, we can meet this need. It's, it's just going to be impossible. We, we just don't have. There's, there's nowhere in the world we can buy food. Even we could, we don't have the money. And besides that, all we got is five little pieces of bread and, and two fish. We're limited. We have limited resources. You ever felt like that? But they responded in faith because Jesus told them to have the people sit down on the grass and the people complied, and he gave, after blessing the, 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 the fish and the, and, the, and the loaves of bread, they by faith, now imagine this, they by faith took that and began to distribute it. W- was that an act of faith? I don't know about you, but I wonder if maybe one of the 12 thought, am I crazy or what? This is ridiculous. This is insane. There's no way in the world this is going to happen. Jesus probably took the, I don't know what he did. I can imagine taking the the five loaves and distributing the five baskets and taking the two fish and tearing them up and putting them in the baskets and said, here, boys, feed them. And they looked at each other and like, what? And can you imagine the look on their face when people kept putting their hand in there and getting out and getting in and getting out? It took a long time to feed 20,000 people, and they kept putting their hand in and getting it out. 
And they, they, they had a little picnic there as a family. You've done this. And they put it out there and everybody consumed it. And they kept putting their hand in and kept putting it in. Stuff kept coming out. And they're probably going, this doesn't make sense. And they responded by faith and they trusted the words of Jesus and they received the power of Christ as they were engaged in ministry and fulfilling what what Christ had told them to do. And they remembered all of a sudden in the process of that, I am convinced that he is in fact the Messiah. He is the Savior. Look at what he can do, man. He's awesome. Don't you think their faith was strengthened? And they renewed their faith in Christ. Are you being put to the test today? And do you need to to realize the need? Do you need to recognize your own limitations? You're never going to have what is necessary and needed to meet the demands. You need to respond in faith. Step forward in obedience and go with Christ and what he's told you to do. And what's going to happen? He's going to infuse you with the resources that are necessary needed in order to accomplish the task. And all of a sudden, you're going to remember, hey, I can do this because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's Christ who's doing it in me and through me. It is him and his power who's supplying the resources. I don't know where they're coming from, but man, look how beautiful it is. And all of a sudden, my faith is renewed. And I experienced this beautiful thing called a relationship with Jesus where I recognize he is, in fact, who I believe that he is because he always lives up to who he is. He's God. But what about the trust of the boy? I think sometimes the boy is overlooked in the text. The boy in the text, he wasn't a disciple. He was was a young man or a, an older boy who had packed his lunch and left his home that day to go to the spectacle, to go to the show, to see this man named Jesus, to hear his message, but possibly to see some miracles. And we see some things about this little boy. First of all, he was acceptable in that he had, he had readied himself to be available and used by God. I think one of the main reasons why many of us are overlooked are, are not joining God is because we have not prepared, we have not equipped ourselves to be used by God. I can't tell you how many people want to serve him in ministry but won't prepare for ministry. The sacrifice is too great to give up everything and to go to a seminary. Or some of us don't want to take the time to disciple and become a disciple and to grow spiritually so that we can be prepared to be used by God. We need to find ourselves in a place where we are are investing in getting ready for the time in which God is going to come and invade our comfort level and he's going to invite us to join him. And when he does, we have equipped, we have readied ourselves for that moment. And when that moment finally comes, he finds our readiness for that, and he finds this then. Secondly, the boy was accessible. How did the the disciple know that the boy had this in his sack lunch? Was he a bully who came up and grabbed him by the shirt collar and grabbed the lunch away? Or was the boy close enough to Jesus and close enough to the disciples so that they were aware of what he had? I'm convinced this young man or this elderly boy wanted to be close to Jesus. He wanted to be accessible to the Lord. And I think one of the main reasons why many of us are not used by the Father is that we're simply not accessible. We're not spending time connecting to him in a close, intimate love relationship and desiring to be close enough to him so that we can be used. 
If you don't ever have a time alone with God during the week, you can't come and connect with him only on Sunday morning for a few minutes and expect God to to use you because I'm accessible now, God. So he's not only accessible and accessible, but notice he was approachable. The disciples approached him. I think sometimes most of us are not used because we're simply not approachable. No way. No, 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 God. No, no, thank you. No. Turn you off, man. Don't want to listen to that. Not interested in going there. That's just way too much. You're demanding too much. You're asking too much. You're wanting too much. No, I'm, I'm just not accessible, and I'm not approachable. But the boy was agreeable, wasn't he? I mean, the disciples said, hey, can I borrow your sack of lunch and take it to, the, to Jesus? Sure. I mean, it was his. He didn't have to give it. He had prepared. I, I got what I need. And Jesus said, let me, let me take what, what you have, and let me multiply it to feed 20,000 plus people. And he agreed. I mean, most of us would say this is a lunch of a poor kid. It, it didn't amount to much. Five loaves and two fish. What can Jesus do with that? Some of us have, been, have used that excuse until God's tired of hearing it. Okay? I'm just going to tell you right now, God's tired of hearing it. Well, what can he, what can he do with me? Well, I, I don't have enough to offer. I don't have enough to bring to the table. I don't have enough talent. I don't have enough ability. I can't sing. I can't preach. I can't do nothing, man. I've got a past that's hard to overcome. I've got decisions that I've made that have crippled my life and my walk. And and we continue to bombard ourselves with excuse after excuse after excuse. And and we just don't step up the plate and allow the grace of God to be sufficient enough to forgive us and to cleanse us and to move us in him. But lastly, I like this part. He was awardable. I know it's a stretch and the able thing on the end, but it works. Did you know that the boy, even though he gave his lunch, got to eat as well? Do you think five little small loaves and two dried up fish were going to be sufficient enough to fill him up? Probably not. But when he gave what he had to God, God supplied so much sufficiency that he was filled to the full. I mean, he was one of the ones that, that, that was filled up. He got to eat. He got to stick his hand in the basket that was provided by his own lunch, and he was rewarded by God. And I'm convinced whenever we step out, when Christ invites us to join him, and we dare trust him, there's always, always a reward. We always reap more in return by giving to him the little that we think we have, and he gives us more than we could ever possibly imagine or dream in exchange. So as we close, let me ask you this question. Are you believing big in your commitment to God? What are you saying to him that's impossible? No way. It's not going to happen. I'll never overcome it. I'll never defeat it. I'll never be able to give that much. I'll never be able to serve that way. I'll never be able to be used by him in that way. I, I, I just, and, and we give excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse. So what do you truly believe about God? He took a little kid 
and used him to bless 20,000 plus people who most of us would have overlooked as insignificant. Did you know that, that when, he was, when the lunch was brought, that the disciple actually minimized the boy and the lunch? He belittled him when he said, Jesus, this, <laughs> let me. But God can take the smallest of us and use us for big things. And I'm convinced God wants to do that with you, with me, and with us. Let's pray. Good morning. We are so glad that you are with us this morning as we begin our service today. Once again, we get to celebrate through Believer's Baptism. Please uh, join us as Pastor Geronimo starts with uh, one of the members from his congregation. a Dios por este momento tan especial uh, el hermano Valdemar uh, es su hija y es un tiempo muy bonito para, para ella y para la familia thanks God for this time this is uh, my daughter Shiley and it's a very special moment for us for her to be baptized ok uh, Shiley yo, tú has aceptado a Jesús en tu corazón have you accepted Jesus ok por la declaración que Shaili ha hecho delante de todos ustedes y con la autoridad que la iglesia Emanuel me ha dado y también la autoridad que he recibido del Señor yo bautizo a Shaili en el nombre del Padre, del Hijo y del Espíritu Santo This is my friend Haley, and Haley 
came to know Christ several years ago, but uh, is coming today to give her testimony of that profession of faith. Haley, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart? Yes. To be your savior and boss? Yes. And you're wanting to be marked as one of his followers? Yes. Because of that decision today, it is my honor, my privilege to get to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism and we're raised to walk in newness of life.